You have done well in worship and song today, and I know that as you receive the words, you will continue in that same vein, and I'm looking forward to hearing our boys and girls share with us again in a little while. I want to say a quick word of congratulations to the South Grand Prairie High School basketball boys team yesterday. Those boys won their regional final, and they are headed to state where we are all going to hope and cheer on that uh, they bring back a state championship. That would be pretty neat for our city in that, and so congratulations on them. I know a lot of kids know players there. And this is March, and March is always that time in athletics when there's the basketball season is starting to wrap up, and the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA, has a tournament that they call, is nicknamed, March Madness. For those who aren't sports fans, it's called March Madness because it's a tournament that takes 64 teams. Now I think they've added actually four that play their way in for two spots. And 64 teams are put in four different brackets and seeded according to how well those who put them in think they will do. And the whole thing is, is it's called madness because it's single elimination. One loss and you're out of the tournament all the way until the end. And it is extremely rare on the boys' side anyway for the top four seeds to end up being in the final four. Somewhere along the line, you almost can guarantee that one of the unknown schools that nobody really has even ever heard about will come up and beat one of the big boys. And that makes it so exciting. I always like to root for the underdog. I did go to Baylor, you see, and I always (laughs) root for the underdog. And and it's a part of that that is a lot of fun. Well, we're going to have some fun as well. And I don't have the total start number today, but I think it's pretty good. We're looking at this month, led by our education staff and Charles and Gwen and Travis, in doing a March Madness campaign in Bible study. Now, we're calling it Madness, Make a Difference. And we want to challenge all of us to make a difference this month and have some fun with the madness of loving our God with all of our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And we're challenging you and all of us that we would be in Bible study under the Word of God, coming in worship every week. Don't miss a week unless you're out of town. We will engage in wonderful fellowship. We'll get involved in ministry and service, and you saw on the board earlier that in spring break for the kids, we have some cleanup areas to do in our church of things we need to just kind of toss out and going to do a week of spring cleaning, and if there's something that uh, we're going to end up tossing because we don't use it, but maybe you have a place for something, Not don't just pick up anything, you got to ask about it, but Uh, We just want to clean out a lot of our old stuff, and there's a lot of junk we need to throw away, just kind of sprucing up. We're also going to be giving to missions this month and engaging in work. So 
it's going to be a wonderful, mad month. Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're going to take, and we're going to continue our walk in a church that makes an impact. March Madness follows right along with that idea because the Apostle Paul is challenging a wonderful group of people they have quite frankly lost a little bit of their way to come back and understand what it takes to make an impact in their world for Jesus Christ. And he's coming into chapter 6, and he's going to challenge them to live out the difference in their lives. And there are three things throughout this chapter that I kind of weave through it that I believe Paul is saying to you and to me that in this month of making a difference, that we need to live out the difference in order to make a difference. And the first principle we're going to see this morning is Paul is saying, as we are relating to one another, we need to relate to believers, both in our church and outside of our church, as family. Now, I probably should clarify this. When Paul is talking about family, when I'm talking about family, I'm talking about relating to one another and other believers as a healthy family. The Corinthian church was relating as a family. They were just relating together as a dysfunctional family. Verse 1, Paul writes by inspiration, and he tells them about a situation that he's heard about. He says, now, if any of you has a dispute with another... Dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such things, matters. Appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute among believers? But instead one brother goes to law against the other and this in front of unbelievers. The Corinthian believers in that church were actually taking up an attitude, and by their actions, they were following what they saw and had grown up with in that Greek culture and world in which they lived. The Greek culture, by nature, had an attitude that they loved to engage in public debate in public forums. They had a culture that was very self-centered, me first. In fact, the Greeks looked at the characteristic of meekness, which is really our strength being under control, and they saw meekness and humility as weakness in their lives. And so the Corinthian church was acting out with a me-first attitude, and someone upset me, or and I didn't get what I thought I should get. So they were going, and Paul was addressing, they were going out into the secular courts over petty little matters and suing one another. You know, and some of you have probably experienced what can happen in some families when there is an estate to settle. 
My mother told the four of us siblings jokingly one day that in our parents' will, there would be, when it was opened up, these words, being of sound mind, we spent it all. (laughs) When it was opened, it wasn't too far from that, but those words weren't there. But you know what she was really getting at? She was getting at that when that time comes, I want you to know, I don't want to see a dysfunctional family. There doesn't need to be any arguing. And if there's no money, there's nothing to argue about. And so she was right on track because I have witnessed and some of you have experienced those realities. Well, some of you have then experienced, all of us have probably experienced in different ways, what dysfunction and hurting and animosity in a family and how relationships can be torn apart. Paul addresses then the church, and he's not against the legal system. There's no two groups of people that probably have more fun poked at them than preachers and lawyers. So in deference to my lawyer friends in our wonderful church, let me tell you, there was a man walked into a small town And he asked the man at the drugstore, he says, is there a criminal lawyer here in town? And the drugstore owner said, yeah, we think so, but we can't prove it. (laughs) Now, I want my lawyer friends to know I am so grateful for Christian attorneys. I'm grateful for the ones in our church because they benefit us in so many ways. Paul was not against the legal system. In fact, if you recall, when Paul was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and he was actually then before Roman magistrates, before Paul was beaten with the cat of nine tails in lashing, he ended up saying and calling that he was a Roman citizen, and he appealed for his case to be taken before Caesar. He used the laws of the land in order for him to get a hearing for the gospel. He wasn't against using the legal system. What Paul was addressing is that these believers were taking petty, very earthly issues, and they were very quick to run out and then have lawsuits filed against one another. And he says, you need to understand something about yourselves. You are an incredibly dignified position as being children of the Almighty God. In fact, you have such a dignity in your position before God that when you get to heaven, you are actually going to be put in a position as a judge. And you're going to be assigned to be along with the Lord Jesus in judging even this world. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28 to his disciples. He says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits in his glorious throne, you who follow me will sit on 12 thrones. He was talking to them specifically about an assignment they would have, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4, It's said in prophetic look at Jesus, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And Paul says, do you not understand 
that when you get to heaven, you will be in a position to judge the world along with the Lord. He says you'll even judge the angels. Now listen, when a believer dies, he doesn't or she does not become an angel. You are better than the angels. You are above the angels in God's created order. You are higher than them. Now, whether Paul is talking about judging demonic angels who have rebelled or those angels who have served the saints is not really uh, clear, and many commentators go both ways. But here's the point. Child of God, if you have such a dignity that you are going to be put as a judge over the world and even over angels themselves, can't you even deal with temporal matters that ultimately won't make any difference in eternity except in regard to your accountability for your own attitude? And in verse 7 and 8, Paul then says, and he says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Quite frankly, why not rather be cheated? He says, instead of you yourselves are the ones you cheat and you do wrong, and you're doing this to brothers. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That's what you hear. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It's an insult. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, well, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go a mile, go what? Two, along with him. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Uh, Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rays on, rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen, if you love those who love you, what reward do you really get? And don't even the tax collectors, they do the same thing. And he's challenging us. If you greet only brothers, what more do you do? Even pagans do that. My goodness. So he says, be perfect. That is complete. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In Colossians 3, Paul writes by inspiration, he says, therefore, it's God's chosen people. Wow, what a dignity. Holy and clearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then over all these virtues, put on agape, love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. What is he saying to you and I? He's saying that in order to make a real difference in this world, there are some people out in the world that what they know about the church is the negative things that they hear one believer saying about another believer or somebody complaining outside of the walls about something that's taking place inside. And nobody wants to go to a place where all they hear is negative grumbling and griping. And so Paul says, listen, when you have a difference, take it inside. Find someone that can share and talk with and mediate between that. Do your grievances then 
internal and deal with them there. Don't take them out and air them in the world. But rather out in the world relate to believers as family. It's a beautiful thing that he's telling us to be a church of impact and live out the difference. The second principle Paul's then going to say to us, and he challenges the Corinthians, is not only for them to relate to one another as a healthy family, but to reflect their new identity. Look at verse 9 through 11. And Paul writes here and he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then, catch this, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of your God. You know one of the things that the enemy, our adversary Satan wants to do in your life and in mine? Is over the years after I've become a believer, he wants to plant in kind of the mind. And I became a believer and gave my heart to Jesus when I was just a seven-year-old boy. Now I can tell you, looking back, at a seven-year-old boy, I didn't do, I didn't even do any drugs. At that, I, I hadn't done anything that outwardly people would think that's just absolutely horrendous. But I knew that I was a sinner, and the older I get, the more I realize what my sin had cost. But here's what Satan wants to do: he wants people then in their minds to think, "Well, I really wasn't all that bad." When God saved me. So therefore, their own consciousness of the depths of their sin and what it cost Jesus on the cross is diminished. And Paul says, listen, you were washed. It means by an act of the will, when you professed your faith then publicly through baptism, the Spirit of God had come into your life and he cleansed you. Your sin was as black as anything. And it was red as crimson, but he washed it as pure and white as snow. You were sanctified. The word literally means God did a work in you. You had nothing to do with your own sanctification. It is all of him. You simply received it upon receiving him. It means you've been sanctified, made clean and holy before God. It's all the work of God's grace. And you were justified. I love the word justified. It means just as if I'd never sinned. Will you say that with me? Just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Made completely right standing before God. But again, it's in the mood of the passive form in the Greek, meaning you had nothing to do with your own justification. You didn't get justified by God because you came through the doors of a Baptist church. You didn't do it when you walked into the water of baptism. You didn't do it when you gave an offering. You didn't even do it when you came to prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Nothing that you did made you right before God. It was only by his grace and your faith in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus was talking with a man named Simon. 
He went to a man, a home of the Pharisee, and Simon there, while he was entertaining Jesus, a woman came in. And this woman, Simon knew she had a reputation in the world. She was a prostitute. And she came in and she fell at Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her tears, wiped his feet with her hair. And Simon, in his own mind, was thinking to himself, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't be so quick to receive this kind of adulation. And Jesus knew his heart, and he said, Simon, can I ask you a question? You know what? When I came in here, you didn't offer me any water for my dirty feet. You didn't really do anything for me. But this woman, look what she has done. And then he makes this statement. I'm going to tell you, Simon, I tell you, her sins that are many have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's been forgiven, and what he means, forgiven little, the one who's conscious, only conscious of having a little bit of forgiveness, that person loves little. I'll tell you the reason that many people, that church houses across America are really not full every single week is because there's a whole host of believers that in our country somehow have the impression I really wasn't that bad. You know, I made an act of faith and, well, that's what I needed to get into heaven. But you know what? I really wasn't all that bad and life's not, I don't really need to be faithful in that area to God now because they love little. But you find someone that is conscious of how much God forgave them and they will love a lot. Back in 1990, in the early maybe late winter, I think around February, Malcolm Forbes, the owner of Forbes Magazine and Forbes Inc., died. Steve Forbes is his son. Malcolm's will was opened, and when his will was opened, the employees got a surprise because Steve Forbes read the will, and this is what the will said. To 750 employees of Forbes Inc., Malcolm wrote this. In accordance with my father's wishes... This was in the will. Steve said, all employees of Forbes were going to get an extra week's pay and forgiven all personal loans up to $10,000. And I'm thinking to myself, first of all, I wish I had worked for Forbes when he died. And I'm thinking there were some employees that thought, I could have asked for more loan. If I had known it was there, I got a feeling the ones that got forgiven 10000 of a loan, probably maybe a little bit more happy with Mr. Forbes than those who hadn't even taken a loan. The fact is, they were conscious of what they had been given. When you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you got a gift far greater than a week's pay. You got a gift far greater than the forgiveness of a little bit of your loan. You received forgiveness of all your sins. You received a position as being a child of God. You received heaven as your future destiny instead of hell for all eternity. And it has nothing to do with anything that you have ever done. It's all due to his grace. When you receive that, how in the world, with that new identity, would you not then want to go out 
and live out that identity in such a way that reflects his glory in this world. Paul says to these Corinthian believers, listen, I want you to make a difference. But first of all, you need to relate to one another as a healthy family. Second, I want you to reflect your new identity. Don't be like the world. And then third, he tells them, I want you to do this by running away from immorality. In verse 12 through 20, Paul gets very pointed. And he says this, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For he said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All the other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, there were some in Corinth who were claiming that the freedom that they had in Christ meant they could just simply do absolutely anything. And Paul starts with freedom. It's an amazing thing. Freedom and grace, just amazing concepts. No man-made religion would ever think of those two concepts. Every man-made religion has a list of rules that you have to follow in order for the God to be appeased or to love you. But listen, God loves you, period. He loves you like you are. He loves you no matter what you do, but he loves you so much he doesn't want to leave you like you are, and he doesn't want for your best for you to do whatever your sinful nature inclines for you to do. And Paul says, as a child of God, I'm, I've I'm permissible. Listen, I have free will. But the things that I choose to do, they're not all beneficial for me. And whatever I eat, whatever I drink, the things that I take into my body. And Paul is looking on the outside of things. That's why I'm very glad, and I think I read it somewhere, I think it was in Hesitations chapter 3, that donuts on Sunday don't count as calories. I really think they don't, but I can't prove it biblically. But the point is, if that's all I ate, if that's all I ate, well, I'm permitted to do that, but that's not going to be beneficial, and eventually I'm going to go to heaven a little bit faster. Uh, I'd like to go to heaven and Pam's going to keep me around uh, with the way that she makes me eat. That's why I come into your Sunday school classes on Sunday, because I, 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 I keep wanting to get there. But whatever I do, Paul is saying, hey, look at it. You, you're not going to lose God's love by anything you do. But child of God, you need to understand that it's not beneficial. 
You need to choose the things that are beneficial to you, that are good for you. And God has outlined in his word principles and precepts for you to follow, not because you have to, but because out of a love for Jesus Christ, you ought to want to, to be the best steward of your body and your health in every way. But then Paul takes a quick turn of attention from what you do with your body on the outside or what you put into your body to what you do with your body. Hear me. Teenagers come in pretty close. Sexual immorality was very rampant in Corinth. In fact, in that city, they had a temple called the Temple to Aphrodite. It was one of the wonders of that, that world at that time. The Temple Aphrodite was a pagan cult ritual that had a thousand temple priestesses. They were basically simply temple prostitutes that made themselves available because in their faith, in their religion, man-made religion, they said that when a man united himself with one of these temple prostitutes, that was a worship experience. And out of that, the gods in heaven looked on and then they got excited and they did that and rain came and it's just, it was absolutely crazy. That's what they grew up with. And so the Corinthian people said, you know what, we're free to do anything we absolutely want to do. And they said, because grace is free and we're not going to heaven by what we do, we can take our body and do anything with it that we want to do. And they took their freedom and they turned their freedom into a license for sin. And Paul said, no, no, no. No, in fact, you need to understand, God made the physical intimacy between a man and a woman and he made that drive for physical intimacy. He made that very strong in order to bind a husband and a wife together with pleasure and joining them close as one flesh. He made it so that he would populate, they would populate the world and there would be those who would grow up to know and love God with all their heart. And they would in turn touch others who would end up populating heaven. And God designed it that way. But the flesh and our sin nature takes everything God does and it turns it upside down. Is there anybody in here that would even remotely think that the culture in the United States of America regarding sexual morality is any better than the culture in Corinth over 2,000, almost 2,000 years ago. Cohabitation has risen among couples before they get married, and yet studies, secular studies, will show you that couples who live together before they get married have a way higher, maybe four times higher probability of ending up in divorce court than those who were sexually pure and virgin before they married. That drive is so strong that God says in other areas, kids, listen to this. God says in other areas to temptation. In Ephesians chapter 6, you stand up to temptation. But in 2 Timothy 2.22, this is what Paul says to Timothy. You need to flee the evil desires of youth. You see, it's the same thing he said to the Corinthian people. You need to flee sexual immorality. 
This is not something you go out and at 11 o'clock at night on a date, you end up saying, we're going to be strong enough not to do anything that could end up hurting us. That's not the place to make the decision. The place to make the decision for sexual morality is right now. It is every day. It is in the confines of a relationship with husband and wife. Proverbs chapter 5 through 7 ends up talking all through those chapters, 5, 6, 7, all through those chapters about warnings of sexual immorality and then challenges a man to stay faithful to his own wife. And that faithfulness, kids, starts to your husband or to your wife before you ever get married. You have no right, you have no right to take from somebody else what is not yours. And that which Pam and I share together is not somebody else's. And we were both virgin when we married, and we're proud to say that. And I challenge young people today that you would make a commitment in that same vein because we've never known what it is to be with anybody else. Now, I know that God's grace will cover, and I thank God for that, but I'm challenging you today that if you're even in that situation, move. Get out and live the life that God wants you to live. It's not for your hurt. It's for your help. It's not to be a burden. God wants it to be a blessing. You see, God loves you, and he wants so much for your life to be blessed. He wants you to be in a position where he can pour out his blessing on your life. And so Paul is saying, run away. Flee those things of sexual immorality. You are loved. Give yourself, husbands and wives, give yourselves to your spouses. Give yourselves in love and do in action, and then the attitudes will also come. Give yourself fully to live the difference and be a different person than the world sees all the time. Out of the love of God, Paul lays it out. He says, I want you to really make a difference. I want you to make a difference. I want you to make a difference by letting yourself relate to one another as family. I want you to make a difference by living out and reflecting the difference that God has made in your life And I want you to run away from the things that are going to hurt you in your life. I want you to do it because God loves you. Would you pray and bow your heads with me? I understand that in our culture, many things have come up in all of us. There's not a one of us who stands. There's not a one of us who stands any better than anyone else for all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God but there may be something in your life right now that the Holy Spirit is dealing with you about maybe nobody even knows it but God knows it and he's dealing with you right now to get it right before him and he says I want to make it right with you I want to bless you let him have his will in your life There are some of you this morning that you've never come to give your heart to Jesus Christ and you can't honestly say you know that heaven is your home. Get it right today. Let us pray with you today. There are some of you that have 
you're Christians, but you don't have a church home. Right now, the Holy Spirit is talking to you about the need for a family. The First Baptist Church is a place that he wants you to be. So when we begin this invitation hymn, we invite you to come. Our pastors will be here to meet you and pray with you. We want you to make a decision for what God wants you to make. And the rest of us, we need to recommit ourselves right now to be a people that make a difference for him in Jesus' name. Will you stand very quietly to your feet? And now out of the balcony here on the floor, as our staff comes, we welcome you right now. Sing with me. Just Yeah. Just...